0: That's
1: it. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asma Muhammad podcast, Forgotten Feminists. Today we have Yasmina with us, my namesake. <laughs> Yasmina <laughs> is from Afghanistan. Well, that's where she was born, but she actually, most of her childhood is spent in the UK. Um, and we're going to get to hear a lot more about her personal background and a lot of the experiences that she has had to overcome. Um, including some really vile anti-Semitism, which is something we're all familiar with these days. We're seeing it all over the world. Um, So let's just jump right into it. Yasmina, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having
0: me. I'm excited. I've always admired your work and we are finally talking. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Yes, we've been following each other for years. I'm like so excited that we finally get to chat. Um, So let's start off with telling us about Afghanistan, because anything that we all know about Afghanistan is the Taliban. That's what we hear. Taliban, burqa, girls not allowed to go to school. Um, But tell us your
0: perspective of growing up there as a young girl. So there are two sides to Afghanistan. There is the I was a child back then. So my early childhood until nine, I spent in Afghanistan and my perception of Afghanistan as a child is different than the way I see things today. Um, Just some fun memories I will share. One of them was just uh, with the kids uh, going to the neighbors and we saw the fruits that the neighbors had and we would just steal it and run away and the farmer would chase us, such things I, I, I have fun memories of. Or when we were traveling, for example, from Jalalabad to Kabul, we would stop on the way and there was this stream and we would just take a break there. Those beautiful sceneries, those are the things I think of. Um, Or when we had weddings, we would uh, dye our hair with henna just because it was fun and cool and something different uh, or try to do henna on our hands. Um, We didn't have much. So having dolls was very difficult uh in that environment so we would make dolls with clothes like just for example i would roll a cloth and just get a thread and make faces like a smiley Mm. so those are the beautiful memories i have were of my grandmother the the stories she told but on the other side there's the dark side so i have seen for example how women were treated how girls were treated just one example, this neighbor, the daughter did a mistake and her mother burnt her back with a hot iron. And my mother said to me, if you do something, if you shame the family, the same thing will happen to you or worse. So those are the kind of memories. There is the beautiful side of the innocence of childhood and the dark side of seeing, uh, for example, from our flat in Kabul, the Taliban walking, per- patrolling the streets and hitting men who sh- uh, who don't have the beard. Uh, the sun mm-hmm. it's not to have beard and not wear jeans that is very Western and they were against this. So we couldn't play music anymore at weddings. We were basically even more restricted being at home, even as kids. There was this uh, element of fear as well. Of course, I didn't really understand it. All I saw was men with beards, with uh, patrolling the streets with guns. That was still like a shock, but I couldn't explain why that was the case. So mm-hmm. those are just a few memories of how it was, it was surreal.
2: Mm-hmm. That's how I
0: think of it, yeah.
1: Well, and also when you're such a little girl, you don't know anything different. Like you don't know that this isn't real life that this is just how everybody lives you know everybody gets beaten up for not having a beard like you think that's normal because you don't have any context
0: this was part of the world so i didn't know there were planes i didn't know there were phones mm. um those are the back then at least uh in the 90s so this is the world you live in it's a bubble and you know violence is normal when a woman gets slapped by her husband because she disobeyed her husband that's a normal uh aspect of the culture it's nothing shocking um when it goes to the iron or something else or public flogging that is like a, a little bit of shock but you kind of get used to it and you just make sure that you don't do anything that attracts attention and the worst thing was as a girl not going to school so I mm-hmm. couldn't read or write and it was always seeing my brother he had access to books he could read and I was envious I was like you know, he has access to the world. He knows what's going on around the world. I have no idea. And why am I being denied this? That's something I couldn't really come to terms with.
1: Now, as such a young girl, did you ask about that? Did you question it? Like, how come How come I can't go to school? Because you left when you were nine, right? So you should have been yeah. going to school for like a few years before
0: you left. So all those Since- years, did you ask? um during the, at that time I don't recall asking uh all I know that girls were not allowed to go to school anymore it was un-islamic mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. for girls to have education because they want to control girls but I didn't see it back then as this for me it was like unfair I'm stuck at home my brother can go to school he can learn I can't so there was always that little rebel in me I re- I-, I have this inner resistance <laughs> against yeah. people telling me what I should do <laughs> with my yeah. life that came more when I went to the UK. That's when I started seeing things um for what they are. Yeah. And not yeah. try to sugarcoat it. Um, but in Afghanistan, I don't recall ever questioning it in that sense. For me, it was like unusual that I have to do these things, but I kinda accepted it.
1: Because Yeah, because you don't have anything My parents tell me all it's... the girls, you know, yeah. none of them go to school. So it's like normalized. You wouldn't think like when you go to the uk and you see girls go to school well then now you can understand sort of yeah. the the contrast um did your family just curious your family friends community i don't know if you're even going to remember this because uh you were so small but do you remember them commenting about the taliban do you remember them saying like oh these horrible men or do you remember them saying things like Thank Allah, the Taliban are here keeping things in order or whatever. Like, what was the sense that people had about these men? I know
0: you were afraid of them, but
1: do you um, remember the, what the general
0: feeling was? Yes, it was support. It was literally yeah. support um, because I've, I I do recall uh, family uh, members talking about the Taliban and how great it is. Finally, we will have, you know, uh an Islamic state uh, run by Islamic rules and no corruption, no Western influence. And uh, they supported the time. They didn't see anything wrong with it. The only thing they didn't like was the fact that maybe they couldn't listen to music or, you know, they couldn't, it was just the comfort stuff they didn't like, but the ideology they supported a hundred percent.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate. It's not surprising though. It was really weird. my, Husband and I were in an Uber in Austria, in Vienna, Austria, and our Uber driver was from Afghanistan, and he starts, like, praising the Taliban to us, and I'm like, this is surreal. <laughs> like, you know, why are you even here? Why don't you just stay and, you know, under the Taliban then? Um, Some people don't like, so normal. Time.
0: It is yeah, normal. he didn't
1: even realize that it was weird for him to be... <laughs> in a Western country praising them because he's just so used to praising
0: them, you know? Yeah. They don't see the contradiction because they didn't come to the West because they're Mm -hmm. fleeing the Taliban. They came here because of work opportunities and they don't have Mm -hmm. to be, you know, uh, can have their way, their freedom to go out and have drinks and sleep around Uh, who knows, but they wouldn't allow that to any other woman. They would not extend that. Um, So that's why they support it. They are, they want to have it both ways. Have the the yeah. Islamic, and on the other uh, on the other side, enjoy the freedoms of the West.
1: Mm, yeah, yeah, totally agree with that. So let's uh, let's go back to little Yasmina. You're nine years old. You don't even yeah. know there's such thing as a telephone, let alone an airplane. And now you're about to go on an airplane to come to the United Kingdom. Can you remember what that
0: was like? That was a very surreal feeling. Uh, so regarding the telephone, yeah, I didn't grow up with telephone, television. It was only during the later years before we had left um, that we discovered a, a TV hidden in an attic. And that was oh. the first time we saw the TV with the Taliban patrolling the streets. And we were like, if the Taliban catch us, uh, I remember the the mood, the feeling in uh, uh, during that time. We were like, okay, we want to watch this. <laughs> we want to know what this TV uh, is. Uh, so that was that one uh, scary moment of being caught, of doing something that is illegal uh, by the Taliban. And when we first left, uh, the first time I was on a plane, for me, it was the be- one of the best memories because the food on the airplane, I loved it. <laughs> oh <laughs> I know my God. Like like food, a- <laughs> that
1: sentence has never been uttered. <laughs>
0: I love food, oh my gosh. and I have good memories when it's connected to food. And the airplane, um, uh, the airplane, uh, memory. I will never forget the food. I just, it was so nice. It was so different. And when we landed and we came out, I saw these buildings. Everything was clean. Everything was mm-hmm. so there was no mud. There was concrete, and those kind of things uh, were a culture shock for me. Yeah so organized like the light
1: changes and people cross the street you know <laughs> <laughs> it's weird people stay in their lanes when they're driving like yeah
0: for a lot so of people more... know, simple things but i appreciate it, appreciated them yeah. when i was uh, when i was a child yeah for sure i mean i was only in egypt for two years
1: and i came back to canada and i appreciated it i was just like it's like a symphony like, it's just so beautiful how everything just, you know, moves so perfectly um, as opposed to just like the chaos of, of Cairo. Um, so tell us more about that culture shock. So obviously the airplane, I'm glad the airplane food was good, although that probably speaks more to the kind of food that you had before leaving Afghanistan. So you were it must have been hard times for you and your family there because you were saying you even had to create dolls
0: Um, you had to make them so the food was uh uh, yeah when you when I look at it today uh, back then it was something big uh, like having honey for breakfast uh, was unheard of only during Ramadan could we dream of having cheese or honey but throughout the um other times of the year, we were grateful to have like meat, like anything to do with meat. Uh, and it was mm-hmm. like a stew with lots of water, with bread and rice, just simple farmers' food, um, because those were the things we could afford. Everything mm-hmm. else, we were happy like uh, pepsi uh, we had at weddings um this was it's a tradition there uh during uh weddings they have pepsi but this was something you know i had never had and it was so nice and it was i just remember those beautiful uh memories uh and coming to the uk was definitely a culture shock um just the fact that knowing that i'm going to go to school and i had heard of school being the place where you learn so much where you um know about the world the secrets of the world Uh, at least that's what I thought as a child that going to school means you know everything Mm -hmm. so that was the one thing I was looking forward to so I uh, every time before I used to go to school I would prepare my uniform the day before I would make sure everything is ready and going to school and um, just my father for example the the there is a good and bad aspect of this so the culture shock was we are in uh, the UK, and my father tells me. So this is the hijab because, as a child in Afghanistan, I didn't wear the hijab. Uh, it was from time to time the chador, uh, but as a child, because we were so small, we didn't have to wear it. Only later on, when you d- display signs of womanhood, uh, then you have to. Then you have to wear it if you're if you don't look like a child anymore. So that was the first time I wore the hijab, and I was told which color, black or white. And I had to choose the color. So that's how I started school. And then my father tells me, what's your name? Teaching me a few words in English. Uh, How do you say what your name is? What is your religion? I am Muslim and no pork. My Mm. name is, I am Muslim, no pork. Those were the few words I learned uh, before I went to school. And when I came to the the school and I I told the, the, the students, with well, my classmates, uh, my name is. I'm Muslim no pork.
1: Oh my god!
0: <laughs> and when I went to lunch, every time I looked because I didn't know anything else, I couldn't communicate, and I just kept saying no pork because I didn't even oh, know. That's... <laughs> but I just kept saying no pork, um, and they would ask me uh questions like where are you from, what's your name, and I did not know how to communicate with them, mm. and. Uh, I'm very grateful that we had really nice teachers who took us out during lunch and would help us with the alphabet because all those previous years are missed years of uh, education. So I didn't know how to read, I didn't know how to write, count all these things. I had to start from from fresh. So I would go home and uh, after school I would draw the uh, the A's, B's, and C's. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was like okay. Sorry, that was um, in the background with the last speaker from my husband. No worries. It was somehow, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, what was I saying? Yeah. Uh, so I used to write the letters, and that yeah. really helped learn the alphabet at such a later stage in in my in my education. Uh, and I didn't know how to read for a long time. So, but I kept learning uh, a few words every day, and within a few months, I could speak English, uh, and I made a few friends. That was a cultural shock seeing people from different backgrounds, different skin colors, because in mm-hmm. Afghanistan, you only see people who look like you. Mm -hmm. and i embraced them i was really happy to have these two friends i made uh but my mother on the other hand was suspicious she was like don't make friends with them you cannot trust them Uh, you cannot trust the christians you cannot trust wise you cannot trust black especially stay away from black kids you don't know if they're dirty things like this i heard as a child um that was the way i i got into uh school and that's what i was confronted with and i was the only girl in school wearing the hijab at that time in 2002 and i felt really like um you know i felt everybody looking at me mm-hmm. uh, because it it tra- attracts attention especially if you're the only one and everybody would ask me do you like they of course they didn't know heard from their parents well, why do you wear the hijab why and i'm just like i'm muslim my name is no no, <laughs> no pork <laughs> <laughs>
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But did, did, did
1: you ever ask your parents, like, did you ever think that you could even question, why do I have to wear the hijab? Can I take it off? Or was it just like you knew you had to wear it because Muslim girls wear it and there's no discussion?
0: There's no discussion. Uh, you know. grow up in that environment. You know, your mother has to wear it. You know, your relatives who are older, they have to wear it. It was literally which color do you want to wear? it wasn't yeah, those are your choices what, what yeah. is hijab what does it mean why should or shouldn't you wear it? what is the the significance of this symbol those conversations don't exist um this is why it's, it was very hard for me to talk uh with my parents because for them everything is black and white it's either it's, it's haram or halal so it's forbidden or allowed and there is no discussion to be had and of course, they always said that if you, if you guys are too Western, if you dishonor the family, we will send you back. Mm-hmm. So there was always that threat of, okay, if I say something, I had there's a fine line of what I can question. I have to accept it because this is the religion, my religion, and this is what I've been told. My parents' happiness matter more to me than my own. Those were the kind of things I used to say to myself. And I didn't question the hijab that much actually for me it was like I embraced it because I did have a culture an identity crisis I Mm -hmm. just accepted what my parents told me because I thought why would they you know it's there this is the culture this is the religion I have to follow if I want to be a good human being if I want to be a good daughter a good sister I have to do whatever is necessary and then after you pass this point of like resistance you accept it and you even start defending it because mm-hmm. you don't want people to think you cannot make your own decisions so that was that's like the thought process behind the head the the hijab
1: yeah that was that was exactly my experience as well you start defending it and almost like lying to other people but lying to yourself first you know because you don't want to admit to them that you have no control over your body but you also don't want to admit that to yourself so you pretend like oh yeah yeah this is my this is if my you decision.
0: keep yourself a alive someday you will believe the lie mm-hmm.
1: so what were your what what was your community like like what was your friend group like or your parents friends or your family friends like were you growing up in a like were they all just muslims then because your family was distrusting of The non-muslims that all lived around you in
0: the uk so we lived in uh united kingdom but it was like little uh talibanistan
1: oh boy (laughs) yeah
0: you only are in contact with people who are like you who either share the same faith and the best thing is if they share the same country and even better is if they share the same tribe so there is this aspect too so we never the family friends were always afghan and usually pashtuns Mm. and you go to your this auntie some they're not really related to you but you call them aunts and uncles and you go to their home and then they start making comments about how the west is how women are and how we need to control the kids so they don't go the the western way So those were the kind of things always. And this sort of like a third eye watching you, not just your parents, not just God watching you, but now you have your relatives, the neighbors, and you are now in Big Brother. You really feel Mm -hmm. like whatever I'm doing, somebody will know. So I, I cannot even afford to ask some guy on the street, like if he asks me what the time is, what if somebody sees me and misinterprets that as me knowing this guy, which means it's haram, it's forbidden to talk to a man. So this, there was always that uh, that fear with growing age. Uh, when I was 9 and 10, I didn't realize it. But when I was 13, 14, just a few years down the line, it became more more present, this control, even further, more control the older you get um because you start to think independently you're more in contact with people but our our circle was the same like even in school most of my friends were muslim friends they just happened to be muslim because even though it's like we always talk about multiculturalism and all of this but there is no no multiculturalism when everybody sticks to their own tribe under quote marks the people who think like you the people who look like you um there is no difference there's nothing challenging your worldview and you uh, you start sharing uh you don't even share that much but you see that they're going through something similar but you are in a way confirming your own lie mm-hmm. um when this one girl she didn't wear the hijab and she she talked with me and I was like yeah why don't you wear it and yeah it's uh a good Muslim woman wears it. So the things that I was told, I told this girl and she ended up wearing the hijab. Oh boy. And it was sort of that moment of pride, like, wow, sister wore the hijab oh. and all of this, uh, because these are the only things you have and mm-hmm. the circle of oppression goes on. So you're just surrounded by same people and you are in this isolated world. So there can be no integration, Because there's, Mm -hmm. for example, my family who shut themselves off from the rest, only sticking to their own people or their own extremist um, uh, minded people.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I find that people in the West quite often, they're so concerned. They're like, what can we do to help immigrants feel more welcome? (laughs) You know, how can we get them to integrate? How can we make them feel safe and comfortable integrating? I'm like, there's nothing you can do. They don't want to integrate with you. They don't like you. They, yeah. You know, they like your your social services and your health care and your you know your education and all of the you know the the housing and the safety and the things that they can get from you. Um that's, but they don't the like fact. your they don't want to integrate. They're not interested in that.
0: That's exactly how my father is and many um, Too many, Um, they don't care. They always said, like my father always said, we didn't come to the West because we are running away from the Taliban. We came here because it's just safer. That is, we don't have to be confronted with the war. That's it. But nothing against the ideology that is causing these problems. And um, he always said that if he ever goes to jail, Her Majesty will look after him. So... (laughs) It's like, okay, uh, he the crime, and the crime is he killing his daughter if she ever goes uh, dishonest the family. He said, yeah, I'm anyway going to be looked after by the British uh, authorities. And he's not wrong. They do, because yeah. they have come that far to not kick such people out and revoke their citizenship, but rather to appease to these kind of people. Wow. And
1: so he will use that altruism
0: Literally. as a weapon
1: against his daughter
0: yeah anything is uh, anything works as long as you win and you think your beliefs are to die for anything for Allah even if it means this so how did you
1: go from this very close-minded upbringing Now, I know you had that little fire inside of you, and I recognize that in you. I think that every single Forgotten Feminist that I've interviewed on this channel, we all had that little fire in us. They tried very hard to extinguish it many times throughout our lives. Um, But thankfully, those of us that made it out were able to continue to keep that fire going for a lot, a lot, a lot of girls out there. They have the fire in them when they're young, and then they just give up. Um, which is completely understandable because sometimes it's just not, it's just insurmountable. Um, But tell us about how you overcame this. How did you, how did, what opened your mind to a different world and a different way of thinking and seeing and being?
0: I've always had that little um, voice in my head telling me this isn't how I should be treated. I don't like the way i am being treated. I don't like the fact that my brothers are treated better because they're men and I as a woman, and they always use the example of Eve and Adam and that the woman is the problem. You know, she caused sin, she caused the problems. And that was always something that was used or that the women, they are more female inhabitants of hell than men. And I just found it hard to accept this as a woman. And the fate uh, of of my fate, my future fate would have been me getting married, of course, against my will, having children, being with some guy from Afghanistan who doesn't, we don't share anything aside from the fact that we have one language and one religion. And of course, on the one hand, it was like, okay, you want to satisfy your parents because this is something you've been brainwashed to do. And on the other hand, I always try to put myself against that. So I would have like late nights, I would talk to my sister and we would say, yeah, one day if I ever get married, I will run away. Or how do we run away? How do we solve this? What do we do? Uh, Those were the kind of conversations we had as teenagers, And it was always like, okay, someday there's something out there. My life isn't like this. This isn't how Mm -hmm. my life should be. There's something for me there, Um, a different world. And these thoughts were always there. The older I got, the more present they became because the older I get, the more eminent it is that I get married against my will. Mm -hmm. Because there were always those conversations. And it was like, okay, I dodged a bullet with this guy. Because my brother doesn't like this guy. The next guy, maybe he likes. And now I have to agree with it, you know. Um, I'm the oldest daughter. I'm the second child. So I'm I'm next in line after my brother. For him, he has an advantage as a man. As a man, you always have an advantage in such an environment. As a woman, you don't. And this was something I always somehow couldn't accept. Uh, small things like me finding out about... The fact that a man can beat a woman in uh, in Islam, and when I confronted my father, because I couldn't believe it, I really was shocked. I said, "I read this uh, uh, in the mosque. Like, what is this? I don't understand." He said, "Let me show you." He gets the miswak, you know, this little wooden uh, thing you use yes. for cleaning your teeth.
1: Fresh. He
0: Does yeah. this on his hand and says, "This is, for example, if a woman is then a husband can do this." It's, also as a gesture, yeah So he's showing me how he will beat a woman instead of saying that this is wrong and the other one was and I told my asked my mother what if a woman says no just because I thought of asking her this it just there was a voice which said, why don't you ask about this because every time I would learn something new in mosque I would ask at home and she said there is no no
3: hmm.
0: end of conversation. That was it. No conversation further. So those were the kind of things I, I grew up with. But the, the main trigger was the fact that when I joined Twitter, thanks to MTV Music Awards, <laughs> I wanted to know who won. So that's why I joined Twitter. And I'd heard about this platform where you can see live what people are writing and who's winning the MTV Awards. So... <laughs> As a teenager, of course, you join. I joined under a fake name. Of course, I wasn't allowed to have social media. So I just used behind my my, my family's back, of course, uh, just for this to find out. And then I'm on the platform for some time, you know, coming across uh, conversations and defending even the hijab. And as a Muslim, being the keyboard warrior defending the religion because i felt like now i'm in a world where i have access to different people who also don't who don't like islam and uh some who are racist you know and i felt like okay it's my duty as a muslim to fight against these people because this is something i was taught and throughout these uh tweets and and people i came across there is one person i kept coming across and this person uh, happens to be my husband. <laughs> we have been together for 10 years now. Um, but we came across he- each other in, these, in such discussions. And he always tried to help me out in such discussions. But because when I looked at his profile, I saw in his bio, Jewish, Zionist, secular, feminist, atheist, vegan, for me was like, i'm triggered haram, 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 haram. i was so triggered i cannot tell you i was because this is something like this guy's i don't know what to make of him i distrusted him because i saw zionist jew and for me it was like feminist i understand and uh everything else i understand but the zionist jew part and being atheist how does this all work so i was totally mind effed and yes. i just like okay I don't know what to do with this guy I don't know how to feel about him and I even answered back in those comments even attacking him and the tweets because I didn't know where to put him I didn't know if he was helping me in this conversation or see my enemy because he's Jewish and a Zionist and an atheist on top and after some conversations I realized some tweets I'm like this guy is actually not my he, he even said you know he's trying to help me out and then it was that moment where I was like, oh, I'm such a, I'm so, like, of, I was judging him, of course. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Now I feel really bad. And I felt bad because he was nice, he was kind, he was respectful. And I was the one who was emotionally reacting because I had seen Zionist Jew. And it was... Um, can, around- I, can I interrupt you for one second and just ask you, what what had you been told about Jewish people growing up? only bad things For sure. <laughs> no good context so just uh in afghanistan i didn't know about jews of course we they i had heard the word yahood that's the word that means jew in arabic but i didn't i couldn't make anything any sense of this word but only when i was in the uk so it was always like ah oh, don't be like the yahoods don't be like the Jew. Mm-hmm. Because I'm the critical one in the family, I always ask questions, and they would use the word "Jew" as an insult, you saying "Do that oh, to me too." They were like, yes. "You're such a you're such a Jew," just because I didn't accept their answers uh, at times or was critical, and they see this as a threat or they see it as a joke. Like for them, it's like, "Yeah, it's 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 okay. It's like an insult. I call you Jew." For example, uh, my father said, "You know, just randomly, we will talk about things, and he would always tell me an Islamic story." So my father, he speaks Arabic, he understands Arabic, and he is quite fundamental in his beliefs, uh, very much in the direction of the Muslim Brotherhood. He even recommended me um, their their books. And he will say, yeah, the Jews, they're so ungrateful. I'll tell you a story of what God did and the food that they brought from heaven. And they rejected that and how ungrateful they are that they just wanted to eat from the land, the garlic, the what the land gave, they chose that over God. Um, so such, it was always like those kind of conversations, uh, just like he, from time to time, there was always that like, ah, oh, the Jew, this and that, ah, oh, the Jews again, you know, whenever mm. there was a, well, there was a war. Um, they were the first thing is like the Jews, they control everything. Uh it's they have uh they bought them the media, they have power, they even made up the Holocaust. Like my father didn't believe that six million Jews died. He even said, you know what, on one hand, he said, uh, too bad Hitler didn't finish the job. And on the other hand, he's like, um yeah, he doesn't believe that so many people died. And uh, or the fact and then he would say they did this on purpose in order to establish a state of Israel so it's all these elder of Zion um, those conspiracy theories he believed in them whenever he's an intelligent man he's a doctor by the way by profession so he should know better but he believed any type of conspiracy theories when it was related to Jews he believed them 100 percent and just the suspicion, the distrust of not trusting anyone who's Jewish. Um, there was this one uh, um, situation where this guy that my father met on the train from France and he needed a place to stay. Now, in the African culture, when somebody wants needs refuge, you cannot say no. This is yeah. like the culture. So my father, knowing that this guy is black and he's Jewish... <laughs> doesn't sound good said okay for the night he will stay this is our culture you know we, we let's not talk about this conversation so in that sense here he reacted differently that's good but then in the morning when he slept over my mother said what do the jews eat for breakfast she told me this in my in the room she was like what should i make for this uh, this jew he's black and he's jewish how does this work so <laughs> I myself didn't didn't know, but I said, you know what? This is your duty. When somebody comes, we make food, whatever we have. We we have guests. We have to treat them, like kings. So whatever you have, egg, make uh, an omelet. We have marmalade. Let's put the marmalade. You know. And this is me as a teenager telling my mother, Mm -hmm. who should know better. But because she had this distrust, and why is he here? Why did he uh, uh, come here? I'm like, maybe he needs a place to stay for the night. <laughs> he doesn't know anyone here. Um, but she couldn't believe. She believed there was a, there was always an underlining reason, a scheme of why this Jewish man was here. She couldn't believe that they did it because they need help or it's out of the goodness of their heart. It's always another reason. Um, Mm -hmm. so the contents I learned about Judaism and Jews was always a bad context Um, another situation is when our head teacher uh, who after I had left school was Jewish and the things that I had heard from my classmates and from my former classmates and and my sister was like oh she's Jewish she's so nice though (laughs) like yeah, she can't be nice without mentioning the fact that she's Jewish, but it's these suspicions. Uh, and these were also kids who are not from a Muslim background who thought this, oh. who have a Syrian background, you know, immigrant background, but they have those, mm. uh, those, uh, deeply ingrained ideas that they have gotten from either TV or from their parents, I'm sure from their parents. And the one good context I had learned about Judaism when I was in the UK was accidentally coming across a singer called Shea Gafso. Um, Maybe somebody knows Shea Gafso. And I loved this song and this video of this old guy driving in, in Israel. And for me, that was my first positive image of Israel before I had met my husband. I was so fascinated by this video and this life. And I thought, but isn't there everything bad and everything is, you know, the occupation, apartheid. How is this guy just enjoying his life? How does this happen Mm -hmm. in this place? And he has such a beautiful voice, so angelic. And when I was in the UK, my mother didn't know, but I used to play this Hebrew song out loud. (laughs) Because I liked it when I was cleaning it. When I was cleaning the home, I used to listen to this song. And she didn't know it was Hebrew. I told her it was Greek. Mm (laughs) And she totally believed it. Although I had my, of course, my distrust of Jews, because this is what I was taught. But there was always that fascination uh, of Mm -hmm. of Jewish people uh, that I've always had, uh, because I just couldn't put it together with what I was taught. I was like, the music, Mm -hmm. you know, the culture, there were Jews in Afghanistan, what happened to them? You know, those are the kind of questions I asked later on as a teenager. And I even asked my mother, do you think maybe we have some uh, Jewish background or how is it, what happened to the Jews? And she was like, don't ever mention this in front of your father. Mm-hmm. And then my brother would say, "Ah, oh, probably you're a Jew yourself, yeah, uh, as an insult. So th- yes. this was, don't be like all, all these negative connotations we hear today is something mm-hmm. I've
1: got. Yeah, so that's why when you saw that, in his profile, you were like, oh, this is why I can't trust this guy, you know, because yeah. of all of your... Was, yeah.
0: That was the biggest hurdle for me, knowing uh, knowing David, uh, because the kindness, everything else. He tried his heart to say, he kept saying, I'm not your enemy. And back then, I didn't, I, I understood what he meant, but I didn't want to accept what he meant. Because I did see him as an enemy, not him personally, as David but him David as the Jew and that was something that always was hard for me in uh so I was the first person to write to him he didn't write to me uh, in terms of dm I slid into his dms (laughs) innocently uh, asking him questions uh, because I was fascinated on the other hand and that's how we started to get to know each other and I even told him you know I had a fake profile pic he, he didn't buy that it was me. He didn't believe it was me. Of course, everybody else believed it was me because he said, if you're so religious, you wouldn't use your real photo. Um, and he was mm-hmm. right. You know? um, so over this period, there was no like uh, intention. I meet somebody, I fall in love. It just happened organically. And that realization that Oh my god! I fell in love with this guy. First of all, I, I I always tried not to accept it. Of course, I was in denial for a long time, but there was always that he's Jewish. That was always there. That okay, I trust him more now, but I don't know how my parent. My, the fact that he's Jewish is worse than the fact that he's um he's uh from a non uh, uh Afghan background. Being Jewish mm-hmm. is worse than anything else.
1: So it's like a deal breaker. I'm surprised that you had the bravery to continue talking to him and that he had the patience to continue, you know, convincing you that he's not your enemy. But so you guys continue to have this relationship. And then so how did, did you?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: How did it all I happen? I need to hear. Like, yeah. How did you, how did you I tell
0: was your parents, parents or whatever? Oh, <laughs> What was that? I will spill the tea. I will tell you all yes. the people. Yes, okay, good. <laughs> so how it all happened was, yeah. um, so during this whole time, you know, we're just talking about philosophy. We're talking about religion, about animal rights, just you name it. Just from A to Z, all the conversations you can think of in life, those are the deep conversations we have without the intention or knowing that we fall in love. And uh just one day you realize you cannot reach the other person. And sort of that moment where, like, you're in panic. Okay, why can I not reach her? Or why can I? Because I was a university student back then um because I, I had to turn off the phone. So whenever I used to write to him, I used to write to him either late at night or when nobody was around could check my phone because my brother would do random checks on my phone he would mm-hmm. check and see what i'm doing the messages he would check the whatsapp group, uh, groups and the whatsapp and the the messages to see if i'm writing to a boy uh, who's maybe renamed as a girl he also thought of that um so i was always afraid so i mostly wrote to him when i was in university because nobody could check my phone then and it was nothing you know just normal conversation but the fact that I was writing to him was already criminal in their eyes so I just continued kept writing and then the fact that we realized okay we love each other what do we do with this now and he was and then I told him you know what this cannot be I told him I had this conversation the first time we talked on the phone I told him this cannot be because uh it just doesn't work in this life but maybe in the next life in paradise we will meet I told him this. So he was like, Why not this life? Why do you have to wait for the next life? (laughs) And it was a good answer. And I didn't have an answer for that. I was like, Okay, I don't know how to answer this. I was like, Okay, I can't think about this now. Conversation over. (laughs) So I just postponed it, knowing that someday I have to confront this because there i i i am in love with this man he's in love with me and we don't know how to move past this um he's ready to he's ready and i was muslim back then when we when we fell in love and when i met um so he was ready for all the changes for the difficulties of meeting somebody from my background i wasn't ready for my freedom i was mm-hmm. totally in denial and i even said okay now uh I think there is a chance we could be together this life, but maybe I should talk to my parents. And then he was like, Are you sure? Because from what you tell me and what you've told me with your relatives, that they would react, would they they wouldn't accept it, you know, that's for sure. And then I kind of got back to reality, you know, it was a reality check, like that's true when I think of everything there was this voice like the 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 slave that was made of me versus the, the person that wants to break free and always like one step further means I soon have to confront things I don't know about myself. I don't know what's gonna happen in the future. And that scares me, that really scares me. But I only have this one life. And if love cannot be a, a crime and this cannot be a crime. If my parents truly love me, they would accept it. And those were the kind of conversations I always had with uh, with David too. And I would always go back a few steps. Um I make one step forward and I would make three steps backwards um, because of the guilt that came along with it. The guilt of thinking of yourself and then the society, the he's Jewish, is 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 haram, is forbidden for a Muslim woman me being Muslim back then marrying a Jewish guy or being with a Jewish guy for the other way around for a Muslim man it's okay to be with a Jewish woman how practical but <laughs> for a woman there's not the same rules don't apply and those those were the, I had a lot to fight with internally and my sister she knew I was riding with David I told her about it but I never told her that we were in love we only she even wrote to him we only had like like yeah we're friends and uh, that was that she didn't and she even told me that one day if you run away don't tell me because I would break under pressure she said and this is her being a teenager telling me this early early, mid-teens and I was I thought about that and I was like okay when I make that step when I run away I'm not gonna tell her for exactly this reason she doesn't want me to tell her and maybe I shouldn't tell her what if she before I make the step to run away already tells my parents because of her fears Mm -hmm. so all these things are going on and then I reached that moment where I'm like okay I will leave so I bought a ticket uh, so I didn't have much money because my brother controlled my bank account I, I couldn't work anyway, but the, the government gave me a grant for university. So it sponsors your studies and the grant, you know, I had to hand over to my parents and just keeping on a hundred, uh, like a hundred dollars, $120 on the account. And this money that I had, I took out and went to St. Pancras um, in the UK and booked a ticket to to France. This isn't uh, summer 2013, because my father was uh, in Afghanistan, he was with the helping with uh, the army with a, with a company, even though he knew that this was like betraying his Afghan rules, but financially was a good option. <laughs> so it was that aspect. So he wasn't at home during the time David and I were riding. It was just my mother. Otherwise, there would have been more control. And the conversation was, or the plan was going to be my father comes, I'm 19 years old. We start now selecting the candidates because the previous yeah. candidates, you know, were not um, up suitable. to the job or suitable. So the yeah. next, yeah. So I knew that now I'm 19, that the, the clock is ticking and it's it's a, a, a dishonor, actually a shame if a woman who is in her 20s and isn't married.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you can't them, hit 20 being unmarried. Your whole family you is going to be ashamed.
0: Yeah. Like, <laughs> what's wrong daughter, with her? No, what's wrong with her? She must be the problem. Yeah. Nobody wants her. So mm-hmm. this added pressure. And uh, when he's in Afghanistan, I buy this ticket. I put the ticket in um, the first ticket. So I put this ticket in this Quran that I had, and I left it in the university locker room. And uh, my parents were looking for a home at that time. And next thing you know, before I could make the trip for the following week to leave, my passport is taken away. My brother said he no. needs my Yeah, he, they needed my passport for some administrative uh, aspect of buying a home. And I gave them, I gave him my passport and my heart dropped. My heart dropped because I knew that's the only way I can leave this country. And I can only, the trip is for next week. And he already took my passport on the Wednesday uh, night and I'm just, you know, contemplating and I write to David saying passport gone. And he had the whole week, he had a bad feeling about something. He couldn't put his finger on it. And I just felt devastated. I felt devastated. I was like, I I already had it in my mind that I'm going to prepare my bag. I'm going to get this. (laughs) So, you know, prepare what you take with you with just a small bag. I was prepared for the following week thinking I'm going to start on the weekend, preparing a few things taking it one by one to the university leaving it there and then from there taking everything in the in the small bag plans don't always go how you plan them <laughs> mm-hmm. so the next thing I wrote to him and I'm thinking the whole night I couldn't sleep much and I wake up early in the morning on the on the Thursday morning and it starts like every second feels like an hour With every second I go to the bathroom, I wash my face. I don't even brush my teeth. I just wash my face. And that moment was, get out now. Now Mm. you need to get out. So I don't have money. There's nothing because I used it already for a ticket I cannot use anymore. And I'm thinking, okay, my brother has the passport. He has it next to his uh, bedroom, on his table, next to his bed. And I slowly walked out. I just get my bag, my handbag, and I just put my certificates in there and my phone and nothing else and a charger, thinking I will need a phone charger in France. <laughs> so I quickly go down, no socks, just shoes, and this burqa, this abaya, and the, the headscarf like a chador, And I just creep down and go to his bedroom, and I see the passports stacked up on, in a plastic uh, bag a wallet and he's asleep and he's his back is towards me and then he while I'm walking there his back turns he turns around but he's still asleep and my heart is dropping my heart is beating that if he catches me in this moment everything is over I was thinking of the next step what do I tell him I will tell him I lost my school my student ID and I need my passport for the exam on that day so I quickly take the passport out, go back to the room because it kept making noise. You know, every sound when you're paranoid in that moment mm-hmm. is like it's a it's like a bell. It's it's so loud, even if it's like a little bit of plastic. And I take the passport and I put it in my bag and I start leave, leaving the apartment and I don't even close the second door and I start running and mm-hmm. I run for my life, knowing that if I look around. It's going to be over don't look just keep running because the other voice in my head told me if you look back you will be going back home Mm -hmm. because this is what happens to a lot of women who run away the other voice takes over and they feel regret immediately they allow themselves to feel this way and they the moment you turn around and you see the home the life you leave behind the insecurity clicks in and I knew that if I do this, I would have the same problem. So in order to avoid this problem, I'm not going to look. I'm just going to keep running. And I borrowed money from a, from a classmate, lied to her about why I needed the money, booked a ticket to France. And that's how I ran away to meet David. Wow. I told him at the same time, writing to him, I left. And he has to travel from one end of Europe to the other end no other planning because it just suddenly happened um so yeah that's that's how it happened and that you know my heart was racing and waiting at the station the 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 clock is like this and every second is so loud and is so long and i'm like somebody will find out i have left i haven't arrived home so this is how i left um i was lucky that i met david um because a lot of people don't know how to protect themselves. They don't know where to go. And I mean, they... you're lucky
1: David was actually a good person. Yeah. because yeah, You laughing. hadn't met him in real life before. He could I have never been met like,
0: him. a psychopath. <laughs> you know? But I totally trusted him because everything yeah. he told me, I believed it was him. I really, truly believe this is the man I love. And it didn't cross my mind at all that this could be somebody else. Until I was in France and I'm waiting in a casino for the first time in my life for him. Because that was the only place open so late. And uh, this guy asked me, the manager, have you met this guy, your friend? I'm like, no, we haven't met. <laughs> me being so naive and innocent. And he's like, but how do you know he's real? And he's not some prank. I'm like, I didn't think of that.
2: <laughs> oh, my
0: gosh. I did not think so far, but if he is, I'm gonna be so effing yeah. angry and hell will break loose if he's not who he is, you know. Um, so but I truly believed it. I truly believed he was who he is. Um and I was just lucky. I was really yeah. lucky the man I fell in love with was a good is a good person, is a good human being, um who knows how to protect me. Um who knows uh, what needs to be done because a lot of people don't know they leave their phone cards, the SIM cards. They, the moment you get that phone call the regret starts kicking in and maybe you made the mistake of answering the call from your mother who's crying Mm -hmm. and you cave in to the pressure because they use the mind games. You've already been brainwashed. You made that one little step. And now they use that against you um, to, to make sure that you are brought back in and then you are dead. Or beaten up and then dead. Um, so that was the reason why I had turned off my phone as well, knowing that that if I see a phone call, I might cave into the pressure. I couldn't trust myself uh to 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 make the right decision for me.
1: Yeah, no, I understand that. That's it's incredible. Um so you told me before that. You know, there was a point where your family learned about your relationship, learned about David and the Metropolitan Police were involved. Um, So tell me, tell me about that.
0: So the moment after I had left and when I met David, it was within the next day that we had met. Um, It was, I had checked my school uh, email, my university emails, and I had seen the teacher writing to me and a police officer writing to me. So Mm. it was important because my, my my parents or my mother and my brother, they thought I had, uh, they probably I had an accident because at that time there were some racist attacks against Muslim women at the same time. Mm-hmm. So they thought maybe something like this happened or missing or something happened to me. Never in their wildest dreams did they think I left on my own. I was yeah. 19. I could make that decision. They could never, they didn't believe that I could, they didn't, it was not part of their of their, of their their thought uh, process. And when this happened after I had left within no time, maybe 48 hours, 72 hours, I had written, I had sent a photo as the police asked saying, they wanted to know if I was okay because they have this missing report, person's report. So I had sent them a photo of me with a newspaper, with the date. And I wrote them an email explaining why I left, that I want to live my life the way I want to. You know, I'm not, I don't agree with these, uh, with these beliefs, even though I considered myself still Muslim back then, um, Mm -hmm. that I want to live my life the way I choose to. Um, And that's all I asked for, to be left alone. And they couldn't believe that. And uh, my father, he sent me emails like, too bad Hitler didn't finish you, uh, addressed to David. Uh, you whore wherever you are in Europe I will find you um I know Europe like the back of my hand like this paranoia always what I was taught as a child like no matter what you do they will know where you are yeah you safe and I truly believe that this is why you know people don't go to the police when they're um it's like being a domestic violence victim you mm-hmm. you 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 don't like the the beatings, but you cannot accept it, and you're afraid, and you still love your abuser. So this is exactly the situation with many of us from this uh, environment. And we wrote that I wrote that email. Uh, he, David wrote that uh, wrote an email that we are both fine. I'm fine. This is my life. Please respect uh, this. I'm an adult, and their reaction was just hate. Uh, you better listen to me, uh, you whore, you slut. You have brought dishonor to the family. I will find you. And then this one conversation I had on the phone call with my father, because I still was in contact with my sister at that time. And she betrayed me and gave my phone number to my my father. Aww. And he called us, um, called me and called David. And he said, um, I will rape you and I will kill oh. you. That's oh what my god! said. Like. And uh, of course my heart is beating and this is the my father who I love on the one hand, I kept saying this still, even though I knew that what he's doing, what he stands for is wrong. He's extremist. This is not what a father should be like. And on the other hand, you know, I felt afraid. I had paranoia. I had panic attacks because of these things. Um, even had to go to the hospital a few times because it was hard to deal with that amount of mental uh, trauma that my parents caused me with their reaction further by threatening me. And I had sent the emails. I had actually cc'd the police officer responsible for my case. And their reaction in the email was, this is a family matter. and I also said that they have my birth certificates. If you want your birth certificates, why don't you go to your parents' house? Okay, how am I gonna go to my parents' house who want to kill me? Why don't you get that for me? And it's your family matter, you sort it out. Obviously, you have some issues so you need to sort out, things like this, yeah? <laughs> this is the police officer who I thought, especially with a Muslim name, who I thought would a female Muslims uh, officer, I will not. Oh, name it. Well I, that I will, explains it. Yes me. That's why. Yeah, yeah, I will not name it uh out of respect of privacy, I will not name the uh the police officer here. But I do have all the screenshots. Thankfully at that moment when this was happening, a, a voice deep said inside me said, "Make screenshots of these conversations because one day you will need them." <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. So I was shocked that they reacted this way instead of telling them that this is the this is the UK, you cannot treat women like this, you cannot threaten your daughter, this is not right. They just said it's a family uh, problem and you know what, my father can see the answers. He was CC'd wow. in many And I lost trust in the police. I knew that I couldn't, I, can, I cannot trust the police. I didn't trust them before for different reasons. Now I cannot trust them to protect me mm-hmm. against People who want to murder me, a.k.a. my parents, because I don't live my life according to their rules and the rules of uh, the Islamic world. And I lost my faith. I really lost my faith in police. And I knew that I would never go to the British police again because they cannot help me, especially when you know that this is a female officer with a Muslim sounding name. You feel relieved because you have finally some an officer who can understand your case and knows where you're coming from. Mm. I, at that time, I was still Muslim, even at this point with the conversation with the police. And I felt betrayed. I really felt betrayed and let down. And the, the, the recent events in London and the way the police are, it doesn't surprise me. When ten years ago they told me it's a family issue with my parents threatening to kill me and to rape me, they took that as a family issue, not as a legitimate threat. And there have been uh, Muslim women who are murdered, thrown in some body bag somewhere, and all of a sudden we don't talk about this. It's a cultural problem, not a religious problem. They say. And I just knew I couldn't trust the police anymore. It is the sad reality. Mm-hmm. But I I know how to protect myself better than the police. I've reached that point, sadly, sadly, because it has been infiltrated by people who, who appease these uh, violent extremists instead of supporting the women who need help, and this is just you know, only cycle of violence.
1: Completely agree, but but the thing is about this officer too is for her to do that because she's obviously having allegiance to her religion to the umma before before she's doing her job properly do you know what i mean like if this was any other woman that is sharing information about hate crimes or or hate speech or about threatening to rape you threatening to kill you threatening messages As a police officer, there's a certain protocol that she has to follow, but she feels so empowered to not follow that protocol and to instead break the rules because she's going to put her allegiance to the Ummah first. She must be doing that knowing that she's going to be okay. Do you know what I mean? Like she must know, she
0: must feel so comfortable doing that
1: because she knows she's not going to get in trouble for it.
0: It's normal. It is normal. And the one thing that in my case is a bit unique is that i'm not the typical victim i'm a victim who speaks and i refuse to be you know in the body bag as i say always say i'm not, you know i fight back you know i'm not sitting in some corner and crying my heart out poor me poor me all of this i fight back i have a voice i'm loud and i'm cold at times yeah <laughs> um that's the way I am and that makes it harder for them even more because I speak out against these atrocities and the fundamentalism and they cannot accept that on the one hand mm-hmm. you know I'm not the poor girl who is somewhere and um uh, my poor family and I'm not praising my parents I'm not being the typical Muslim woman yes yes if you were bill. yeah 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 I don't have the bill and that's why I don't get the help yeah
1: exactly if you were saying oh, these white men are being racist <laughs> against me, that I would be, be enough. You don't I have to say he not. threatened to rape me, threatened to kill me, You know, said Hitler should have finished you off or any language like that. It just has to be like, I'm afraid of this white man because he was being racist to me or he used racist language and that would be enough for them to respond. But if the person who is persecuting you is a Muslim, then they somehow... They get confused who's the victim and who's the perpetrator in this situation.
0: Yeah, because they think in just these uh terminology, the woke terminology, that if you you can do no wrong if you're an Afghan and a Muslim, you can do no wrong. The only problem, even this is a problem of the West and the white colonialists, as they say. Mm-hmm. My oppressors pray five times a day. Yeah. Those are my oppressors. And um this is why you know I'm even more outspoken about this because they're making the situation worse for many of us we keep saying what the situation is like and they tell us who we should be and what Mm -hmm. we can and cannot say and if we say something we are suddenly oh the trauma one and the uh, the woman who cannot keep stop talking about the cult she left like using that as as if that they can use against us you know you cannot use this against me you can try this on some 10 year old but not against me um these labels you know um and I fight back I really fight back with words and with my body I use that yeah I was going to ask
1: you about using your body as a canvas for your activism tell tell me about how that
0: came about so I've always been fascinated about um art photography performance I really used to enjoy that when I was in school I couldn't pursue it because I wasn't allowed to do so and taking a photo I used to love you know from my bedroom in London take a photo with my almost broken phone of this beautiful sunset and for me it was like maybe a hundred sunset photos but every sunset photo was special (laughs) So that's how I saw it and I remember telling David about uh, my love for photography and that we had a camera at home but I couldn't really use that camera it was more my brother's camera a family camera but it was more his camera and I always talked about that we shared that passion together and he's a photographer that's the the other aspect uh, which makes things more interesting because I used to ask him about photography and all the different uh, aspects of it and when we first met, he gave me a camera as a present because he remembered how much I love taking photos. And I started using that camera to make photos of myself, just selfies in the beginning. And then I knew he did nude erotic photography too. And in the beginning, I was shocked to see the photos um, because I was like, these women are so beautiful. And yet I'm shocked um, because they're showing their bodies. Um, And then the other voice said, but why is that wrong? Why do you think this? Is it because of the way you grew up? So there was always that constant fight uh, of my past with my present. Because the moment I was free, I didn't know what to do with my freedom. There's one step to freedom. and And the hardest one is, what do you do with that freedom? I became a prisoner of my own freedom because I put limitation on myself. I had this timetable of what I do before as a woman, as a Muslim woman, and now I don't have that timetable. I'm free Mm -hmm. to do what I want, and I'm afraid of doing something I want. So I wrote to David like, hey, I'm at home now. I don't know what to do. What do you think I should do? And his reply was, I was shocked with his reply. He said, it's your life. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You have to figure it out. Nobody ever gave me that answer and I didn't know what to do with it. And I was angry at him even that he told me this. And as of this day, I started to realize that now I have this life. I have to confront my demons. I have to go back to all these things, unravel it and try to make the best out of my life because I am free. There are women out there who don't have this opportunity. And I knew that I had that unique opportunity to do what I want. And I started doing one way of you know expressing myself and letting go of the past, and it felt liberating, it still is liberating, is through the lens. And in the beginning, it was behind the lens, and I started taking photos of me and then more sensual photos. And that's when I realized wow, I really love it. I look beautiful. I am beautiful. You know, this, this doubt of you're not beautiful, and then you you reach that point where you are beautiful. And I told Dave, I showed David the photos, and he was surprised. He was like, whoa, like you just showed me some new shots you took of yourself. (laughs) He couldn't believe that. And during this time, I realized I never prayed. It never crossed my mind to pray. And I had that one scare moment where I started er erratically, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I was shocked that I haven't prayed. And I quickly went, did the wudu and started praying. And then David says, you know, you never thought about praying until now. Is it important or is this some kind of uh, show that you're trying to do? Who are you trying to prove something to, if you're a good human being or not? And in that moment, I realized he has a point. Actually, it is just, you know, like a machine you have been, you know, tampered with and you do these actions. And that's when I stopped praying. That was the the first time in my freedom and the last time in my freedom, I prayed. And after that, the photography, the experimentation—I really enjoyed it. I, I saw the beauty of femininity and of woman that was taken away from me, that inner child that was taken away from me. And I started working on myself and followed all the different size photography platform. And I even asked David like, "Why he doesn't take photos of me?" I felt offended because he didn't want to say anything or make me feel like I have to do anything you know just because he does uh, nude photography and that's how I came into be doing first of all nude photography and later on I started doing webcaming and just taking it step by step I was like okay I'm enjoying this webcamming thing what's the next thing I can experiment and see what I like and what I don't like So I started uh, experimenting with BDSM. This is something I love doing in my personal life. And the next natural step for me is, okay, I enjoy doing solo uh, actions on camera. What if it's with another person? And that's how I also discovered my sexuality of being bisexual. I didn't know this before about me. And only because I started working with film producers in adult films that I overcame that. And I never had any kind of like, feeling of shame or guilt by that point. For me, it was just a natural thing. And this is something I really, really love doing. And that's why I took it a step further and started creating my own content. So I run my own. Yeah, it's cliche for so many people nowadays, but back then it wasn't. only fans. I have. for Since 2017, I've been running this page, making our own content, traveling, doing new uh, shooting tours and just living my life the way I want exploring myself and being outspoken about me being an Afghan woman and showing my body because there's no nude Afghan model out there, at least not in the public like me. And, you probably um, have a lot of
1: Afghan followers, I'm going to guess.
0: Uh, Yeah, but I had a lot of hate too. So I really had mm-hmm. a lot of writing hate to me. Ah, oh, you Afghan whore, like you cannot be Afghan. Afghan women don't do this. Uh, mm. You're an Af- you're probably a Jew who's pretending to be an Afghan. They would also use this, or writing to David, "Are ah, you effing Yahud, uh, uh, What are you doing with this woman? You're using her, and you know the the cliche, the cliche hate <laughs> from this mm-hmm. part of the world." Um, so this is something David has to deal with too, and yeah. the concept he gets about being Jewish and photographing an Afghan woman. Because they want to deny me of of this Afghan identity um, that they believe doesn't it it doesn't exist. I cannot be who I am. I must be lying about my background. Mm. That's the other aspect. (laughs)
1: Well, good for you. I'm happy that you're happy and that you're doing what makes you happy. And you know, nobody can take away your Afghanness from you, of course um and I and I love what you said about uh reclaiming your femininity because that when you are told at a young age to wear hijab because your body is sinful and you can cause sin you're you're immediately ashamed of yourself um head to toe you know you always think of yourself as something your body, your being as something negative and so it it is a huge hurdle that all of us have to overcome those of us who've had to take off hijab we all have to start to recognize that being you know recognizing our femininity or being proud of our bodies or um, recognizing that we're beautiful is not a shameful bad horrible thing you know um
0: so anywho Yeah, absolutely. This is why I use the hijab when I do nude shootings. I'm naked and I'm just wearing the hijab because I want to break those taboos. I want to, it is a provocation and I know it is. And this is the only place for me, legitimate place for the hijab is on a porn set. Because it's the only time I choose to wear it. <laughs> it's, sounds funny for uh... some people. The only time that I choose to wear it for this purpose of breaking the taboo yeah well <laughs> in
1: some ways you know yeah anyway yeah. um yeah well i won't get into it <laughs> yeah. i have i have um, thoughts it's- but it's it's not <laughs> the time um, I, I'll let the, the, the crowd that are here to come see you and, and talk to you, um, share their thoughts or ask their questions. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. If you have anything that you want to say to, to Yasmina, please go ahead and unmute yourself. We're a very small group today um, because we were late, and I think that some people thought that they had the date wrong. Um, so feel free to just unmute yourself and jump in.
4: Well, thanks to both of you, you Yasmin for organizing these things and you Yasmina for your really wonderful recounting of this terrible story. Uh, These could be public therapy sessions because all of us have uh, these things in our self repressions in our lives but of course Most of us haven't suffered them in the catastrophic forms that some people here have and that you have. Uh, So it helps us along in our lives. Uh, You said so many things that ring so many bells, like when they said, oh, under the Taliban, there was no corruption, no Western influence. Uh, Meaning the corruption, it seemed like it meant corruption and Western influence are the same thing, which I think is the correct Islamic view. Uh, and it's also the correct uh, Orthodox Jewish view, the corruption and non-Jewish influence. You know, it's it's the traditional concept of what corruption is uh, as opposed to the modern concept. Uh, that's, I, I, I wonder if you think that's, I'm understanding this right or wrong, uh, and then a couple other things like that that also rang so many bells, but I wonder how widespread it is
0: it's definitely widespread this idea of um being western is you as a is seen as a corruption but a corruption of your character Mm -hmm. Um, because it is not acceptable in this world view to be western it doesn't go together with being muslim you can you are either the enemy or you're one of us and this is the view i grew up with and what i always think now is that there can be no right in a wrong life, as Adorno said. This is the wrong life, there can be no right. No matter what you do, no matter how many times people try to justify it, yeah. it just, it's unjustifiable that a human right abuses. Yeah. Um, regardless of what people's theories are about the West, but this is just the fact that women are treated as second-class citizens, um, that we are told we don't have rights and we should live as seventh century, um, people i just <laughs> what I say that's what i told my father in court i told him that this is a 7th century ideology and this is 7th century mentality and i'm not having it Yeah. i told him this in his face that was the last time i saw him in court
4: <laughs> and we jews have 30 20 centuries back or 30 centuries back my orthodox cousin who's a very good jewish scholar explained to me the corruption that non-kosher means Unclean in the eyes of God and therefore corrupt. But by koshering something, you make it clean and it's no longer corrupt. Uh, and money corruption is there too, but that's a secondary aspect of it. Uh, so, yeah, this is much of the world lives in this concept of corruption rather than the real one. And I think that's why, and this is rather important, secular or compromising, westernizing dictators in the Islamic world or non-dictators get accused of corruption all the time because they're corrupt in their heart, they're connected with the West, whereas Islamic regimes can be as corrupt as they like in the modern definition of the world because they are us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to add uh, regarding the Jewish tradition that this is something i've always been fascinated about and um, my husband and i david we always uh have this conversation about jewish thought and the one striking difference is that in judaism you can be jewish and you don't have to believe in god in islam <laughs> you have to believe in god you cannot have it one way or the other in judaism you can be an atheist and you can be jewish because the God concept is not the typical concept that is existing in Christianity and in Islam, and that's also an aspect that prevents people from widening the scope. It is just there's this one God, and it's a, it's like a physical aspect, uh, and you have to believe it or you die. <laughs> yeah. well, there's one
4: other thing. There's one other thing that was very widespread. There's a couple of others, but one worth bringing up: the Holocaust denial. And the next yeah. step is Holocaust advocacy. We have, to, we have to complete the job, Hitler didn't complete it. I have yeah. an era's first law of Holocaust denial, which is that the implied thought is always, we have to finish off the job. Hitler wasn't able. Uh, how widespread do you think it is? I don't know how well this law holds, but I think it's important, it exists.
0: It is so widespread, as I said, that the context I learned about Jews was an anti-Semitic context. It is on the one hand, They made up Holocaust to create Israel. And then the other hand is all these anti-Semitic conspiracy theories combined. And uh, on the one hand, they are committing a genocide, but it just doesn't exist. They use it as a weapon, the terminology against Jews. And uh, it is extremely widespread. The fact that my father told me that Jews are corrupt, that they disobeyed God, that they question God. That is the crime. Of yeah. being Jewish, that they questioned, and questioning is something good. But in his world, in his fundamentalist world, that is you are a, you are an enemy of the God if you do this. And he would talk about the the Battle of Khaybar, what Muhammad did, and that he took uh, a Jewish woman as a as a wife after he killed his uh, the tribe uh, in uh, in Medina so those are the stories i grew up with and of course i developed a distrust and i didn't grow up in uh you know in gaza or anywhere like this i still had a more liberal upbringing when you consider this liberal so you can imagine <laughs> in the rest of the world um and the praise of adolf hitler they praise adolf hitler that's mm. what my father did he praised him and he said yeah he didn't his first reaction to his daughter falling in love is too bad Hitler didn't finish the job. And this is what we're dealing with. It's pure hate, the hate for Jews and the hate for everything in life and putting your beliefs above everybody else. It is, you cannot talk with such people.
3: Hmm.
0: There's no conversation can be had with people who don't uh, believe in your existence. Um, the conversation is over for me at that point and uh, I'm the enemy you know my parents will always they even said that there was Jewish magic done on me by David (laughs) I can't think for myself so he must have done some voodoo (laughs) (laughs) there's always those theories it's extremely widespread and my father is a doctor he studied medicine he had a a Soviet Union uh, when the Soviets were in in Afghanistan before the uh, war Uh, there was a communist afghanistan so it was still a liberal afghanistan and he still had these thoughts um that just gets to uh shows you that even people who are doctors just dr mengele uh can can turn out to be monsters and actually ordinary men in the end of the day who believe these things and that's the danger
4: well thank you again for surviving the the real (laughs) (laughs) voodoo
0: Yeah, <laughs> I'll take another bite of that, Bruno.
3: <laughs> well, I want to say thank you, also. That what an amazing story and what an amazing person. And I just I'm always fascinated by. You can just see the the little fire, like you were talking about. The people that do have the courage to leave, and I'm, I'm just fascinated by what that is, and I want to know, but <laughs> we can't. But also, I one of the things that is the, that makes me the most angry is, oh, it's just their culture. You have to respect their culture. And I say, I don't have to respect anything that I, and I want to say my response is, well, you know, there was once a culture where they sacrificed virgins to the volcano. So it would rain, you know, um, if that was still around, would you accept that culture? You know?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And this is how I see it. It's not my culture. Afghanistan was Zoroastrian Buddhist before, and we -hmm. we were conquered by imperialists and forced. And I can only imagine what the people back then went through who didn't have the resources we have today, who had to follow and women being mass raped, all of these things. Um, So it's not my culture. It is the culture that has been imposed on me Mm -hmm. and I don't see it as culture. I see it as barbarism. There are yes. certain cultures that are superior, a culture where women are respected, where children are free of brainwashing, and can go to school and learn to read and write and learn to respect each other. That is a superior culture because human life means something. It's not a culture of death. And for me, that's that's the, 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 the comparison, you know? Certain cultures are more barbaric than others. And I prefer being in the Western culture mm-hmm. because I go and out as a woman, I don't have to fear for my life, even if there are some Islamists here. Uh but it's still a much better place than being a woman in Afghanistan.
1: Oh yes. Bindi, did you want to say something to Yasmina? It's nice to see you by the way. Welcome. You're new
2: here. <laughs> thank you so much. Yeah, it's my first time. And you know, I have so many thoughts going through my mind right now. And, and I'm feeling so overwhelmed. I don't even know if I can ask any questions, but I I, I just really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And you know, maybe to ju- maybe if I could just say one thing just about my background. You know, I'm I'm Jewish. I'm not especially religious, but I'm a first-generation American. My my mother and grandparents were Holocaust survivors. And especially right now in the context of the war that's going on, I I can't even put into words the terror that I'm feeling on so many different sides. I'm just trying to learn as much as I can from as many different sides as I can. And I'm just really, really grateful that you're all here. So thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Cindy. And just so you know that you have somebody out here like me, I'm doing my best to be a supporter, to show the support, speak out against it, especially from my background, showing people that this is what we are taught. This is what Israel is facing. This is what Jews are facing. It is not something that just happened in 15 years in Gaza. It's been happening for centuries. Yeah. And this is the result of that. Um, this is why it is hard to fathom it. It is hard to process all of this. But just keep strong because the light it will always be there and it will still uh, keep shining uh, despite the difficulties.
2: Yeah, th- thank you. I mean, really, this is, this is the most light that I've felt in, you know, since the, this war's been going on, and I, I apologize, I have a little dog. She's barking at something outside, so I, I'm sorry if you hear any noise in the background. But we don't even hear her. That's okay. Oh, you don't, okay, Missy. <laughs> <laughs> you <know>, I do <laughs> anyway. But thank you again. It's, it's really, really nice to be here. Well, I'm well, really I'm glad. glad. Oh, no, you I was just going to
1: say I'm grateful keep on cutting you off i just want to say i'm really grateful cindy that that yasmina and i could and all of us here could bring you some some light today sorry lois go ahead
3: no i was just wondering if yasmina is going to write a book i mean
0: yeah amazing uh, a lot of people have asked me this actually i did a documentary for channel four uh about my life but unfortunately you know they said they will be in my words and it wasn't my words but mm. they edited it they published the documentary and then afterwards they they pulled it out because they were afraid of the community even though it was just about my life um but this has always been something at the back of my mind when people said why don't you write a story about your life I love to write I love writing poetry and I do understand the importance of words I'm never gonna say never, and who knows? It is a powerful medium to 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 tell my story and maybe help people out there. That you know, there are people like me who are not like this. You know, we are against this. We are uh, together, united against the fundamentalism. And um, let's see, let's see that you know the world is big there's so much to do i'm positive i did the documentary and i never thought about doing a documentary about my life but because it was channel four i agreed to it and what they told me so let's see uh i'm open to to writing a book uh it is just finding the right words for what i've been like speaking about it is one thing but writing it down i haven't gone through that process yet
4: do you have access to the channel Four documentary
0: Unfortunately, no, they have the link. If you write uh, Afghanistan Stop Porn Star, Channel 4 in Google, you will find the link, but the episode is unavailable. <laughs>
4: because... <laughs> I, would think that le- I would think that legally there would be some way for you to get access to that and use it yourself.
0: Uh, I've seen a private viewing. I have a private uh, viewing of the documentary I had. So yeah. I knew how the documentary was gonna be, uh, but they have it, uh, they published it, but they had a uh, fear
3: mm-hmm. of
0: the backlash. Um, and they, this is this was it. And I was a little bit surprised because in the beginning they said, yeah, we are not like the others, we are controversial. We say things how it is. You speak your truth. And they backed out in the last minute. And you know what? That's, I did my part, you yeah. know, of telling my story. That was their part. But you maybe know? Maybe, yeah.
4: some, maybe someone else will broadcast if you get control of it. I it, it, it
1: would I
4: know, yeah be a legal fight, but they might they might decide okay, the heck, it's not worth the fight. Give it to you.
1: You know <laughs> you you have to sign a waiver, era. They 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 always keep control of their yeah they own yeah,
0: yeah they, they own the rights.
1: And she that's doesn't okay own the rights. Me.
0: That's yeah. okay for. Me. I told my story um, the The thumbnail is out there you cannot take that away even if they don't broadcast it anymore <laughs> uh, but it was a fun process also for me to tell my story and just you know work things through things I never worked through before and uh, yeah it's it's you know behind me I, I've told the story and um, whatever they do with it it's none of my business I don't see it as that anymore
1: that's part of the reason why I started this podcast. These conversations is exactly that. Nobody else is going to tell our stories. Nobody else is interested in what we're going through. Absolutely. You know, I had, I, I couldn't get my book published. I had to end up self-publishing. Yeah. And you realize at the end of the day, I'm not going to sit around waiting for people to care about us. Why don't I care? Like I'll start a channel and I'll start talking to women and I'll get our stories out. You know, instead of us just constantly lamenting and being, you know, frustrated and upset and angry at how we're being forgotten, you know? Yeah. Um, so you just have to just do it for yourself. So, you know, I, I agree with Lois's suggestion of, you know, you can't make a documentary for yourself, you know, unless you want to go to film school and all that, but you can write your story. You can write your story. It will be a difficult process. I promise you it's going to be the hardest thing you've ever done. It's going to be harder than that day taking your passport from your brother and mm-hmm. running out of the house. That's how hard it's going to be. But it will be so cathartic. Yeah. And you know, putting your story out there and you know, possibly or probably most likely motivating and empowering other women to also run and not look back. Um then you're you're it's going to be rewarding. It's a really it's a very difficult process, but very rewarding process at the end. And just do it for yourself. You have to just do it for yourself. Don't sit around waiting for somebody because this is what they're going to do. They weren't telling your story anyway. They're going to edit it the way they want to edit it. They're going to post it if they feel like it. They're going to take it down if they feel like it. Take back your power. It's your story. Write it yeah. in your words and publish it yourself.
0: Absolutely and understand. be here.
1: I mean, you're here telling your story. so.
0: I wrote to you because I've always admired your work and uh, this um, project that you have you know uh, where you interview women uh, that was always inspiring and the interviews that you conducted and I was like I really admire this woman and I've always wanted to talk with her and this is the perfect place it's the right place actually to talk about this and as you said, it is the power, it is my voice. And this is why I'm even increasing, like on social media, using my body, talking about these things about my work, but also about the fact that I grew up with anti Semitism, that this is what happened to me, so that people know it's not. A... When they say, oh, it didn't happen in a vacuum, it happened in the vacuum of anti Semitism. This is what happened. And same for David and I, we've been through a lot of difficulties because. I'm no longer Muslim, but from this background and him being Jewish, even though he's an atheist, it's hard to accept for people. Um, But I'm so grateful because I have an amazing husband. We've been together for 10 years, married now for six years and counting. (laughs) So it's been an amazing time and he's always been supportive of me. And he even tells me like, he also mentioned the fact uh, about the book that, you know, like, telling me that why don't you you know if you really think about this why don't you really do it as you said not sit around and just make the step I think it's always the first step that is the hardest yeah it is uh, yeah you still are holding back something I still haven't maybe processed certain things even though I think I have um yes. but it takes a time it takes a lot of time you're right yeah but that's what people well <clears throat> from my end people that come to
3: me, <clears throat> excuse me, say that their be- their favorite kind of book is a personal journey story. They, they love to hear to read these personal journeys. And well, Yasmin knows that I was uh, raised a fundamentalist Christian and left. And there's a lot of, of those stories, but that's what people want. And it's just the upper cross. I mean, you know, the book companies that are making money that don't want it it's not that there aren't people out there that want it there's people that really want to know your story and need to hear your story and just thank you so much for telling it to us and i'm sure this this video will have lots of views lots of views
1: (laughs) thank you (laughs) thank you so much lois and i i do want to just reiterate what lois was saying there too because she's absolutely correct all these publishers turned me down and I self-published and it's been translated in 15 languages. So people do want to read it, you know, mm-hmm. but it's the, the gatekeepers that are controlling, you know, which voices get out there. Right. Um, and it's always, like you said, you know, they're just afraid of who they're going to offend. It's the whole story of the metropolitan police thing back to that again. So that's mm-hmm. what it's all about. Yeah. yeah. Um translated
4: translated and published in 15 languages
1: well some of those languages are through the richard dawkins foundation so he just published it for free on his website so that's uh, arabic indonesian farsi and Urdu. Mm. um so yeah so he his they have a a part of the richard dawkins foundation is called the translations project where they translate um books that they want to spread out into the world but they know will be considered you know contraband so they they, if they post it online then people can read it more comfortably and then just like um hide it if they need to as opposed to a physical book it's you know it's a lot more difficult Mm -hmm. yeah so before we wrap up um I just want to make sure that there's nobody else that has any questions or comments for Yasmina. We haven't heard from you, Ev, so I just want to make sure that you as well. Okay, I think we're good. Um, and Yasmina, I want to give you the last word. What's your, your final message that you
0: want to give to the world uh, or anything that you want to tell us about? Um, The one thing I would like to say is especially since October 7 is use your voice you know uh, it is difficult it is hard Um, it is our last dance for sure in in the western civilization because if Mm -hmm. Israel fall we all fall it will be like dominoes for the rest of us with the the Russia and the rest uh, together with terrorism and to not be afraid, you know, uh, fight for the freedom because now I understand more why people fought, fought for suffragette rights. They fought for all our rights. It is hard, but if I can do it, a girl from Afghanistan who couldn't read and write and suddenly ended up in the UK and now living my life on my terms and being happily married, being happy in my life, anybody can do it. It is hard, it is step by step. Um, But never give up. There's always that light at the end of the tunnel. And if the tunnel is long, it takes time. Um, But the light is there. And just keep following it.
1: Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank Thank you so much, Yasmina. And thank you all for joining us. And yeah, I just, I have to reiterate what you said, Yasmina. I think that was really beautiful. You know, since October 7th, we've always known this. You know, people like you and I have already known this. A lot of people in Israel have already known this. But now the whole world knows um, the danger that we're dealing with. It's no longer hidden. It's out out there. And you're absolutely correct. We have to speak up. We have to use our voices. And I commend you for doing that with us here today. Um, I'm really grateful for you, you know, sharing your honest story with us. And um, yeah, I'm just so, so proud of you. So appreciative of what you've overcome And yeah, I'm grateful that you're going to be like Lois said, you're going to be inspiring and empowering so many other girls who are in difficult situations. So thank you.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Thank
1: you, everyone. Take care. See you at the next one. Bye.